Please turn with me in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 4. Hebrews chapter 4, and we'll read verses 14 to 16 this morning. Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 to 16. There the word of Christ says this. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you today, Lord, knowing that, Lord, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, who is Jesus, the Son of God. And Lord, on the basis of his ministry and of his work, that he is even now performing on our behalf, Lord, we draw near to you today, Lord, with boldness and with confidence, knowing, Lord, that in him you are not against us, Lord, that your wrath has been satisfied, and that, Lord, we have your favor and that we are your dearly loved children. And so, Lord, we come to you today, Lord, in great need, Lord, in great need of your grace and of your mercy, Lord, to help us, Lord, as we make our sojourning through this life. Lord, we are beset with many weaknesses, Lord, many frailties. Lord, there are many trials and tribulations that we must pass through before we enter into the kingdom of God. And Lord, each of them requires your grace and mercy. Lord, we know that apart from you, we can do nothing. And so, Lord, we are in desperate need of your kindness to us. And, Lord, we come to you today asking for you to grant it to us, Lord, on the basis of your Son. So, Father, be with us today. Lord, lead and guide us in all things. Lord, we pray that you would, Lord, cause the word that we hear today, Lord, to bear much good fruit in our life. And it is in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Well, as we mentioned last week, beginning in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 14, the apostle starts to explain the role of Jesus Christ as high priest over the people of God. And this is his main topic uh, throughout chapter 10 of the book. He's doing this by comparing and contrasting what Jesus has accomplished as high priest with those high priests who serve from the family of Aaron under the stipulations of the Old Covenant. And in every way, he will prove that Jesus is superior and that he is the only high priest who is able to actually bring about redemption and the forgiveness of sins for the people of God. So we began last week by seeing that we, the Christian church, the believers, the people of God, who are comprised of both believing Jews and believing Gentiles, we do have a great high priest. Though we do not go to a temple on the earth, and we do not approach a visible, physical high priest like those under the Old Covenant, this does not mean that we Christians have been deprived of the ministry of a high priest. We have a high priest as the people of God because there is no way that we can approach God apart from a high priest. And this role in ministry is necessary for sinners like you and me to draw near to God. And our high priest was called a great high priest. Just as there is a king of kings and just as there is a lord of lords. The king who surpasses all other kings. The lord who rules and reigns over all other lords. So also there is a priest who is a great high priest. Who is superior to every other priest. 
And this is our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus exceeds Aaron and those priests that came from his lineage in each and every way. Also, we saw last week that our great high priest has passed through the heavens. The heavens separate us from God. God is in heaven and we are on the earth. And there is no way that we sinful men can rise above this earth and draw near to God. And yet, we are assured that our great high priest has passed through the heavens. He passed through the first heaven, which is the sky. He passed through the second heaven, which is the expanse where the sun, moon, and stars are found. And now he has been received into the third heaven, into the highest heaven, the very dwelling place of God. And this is where he is ministering on our behalf as a great high priest over the household of God in the tabernacle that is not of this creation. He has passed beyond the veil of the heavens and is serving for our sakes in the Holy of Holies in the very presence of God. And we saw last week also that our high priest is Jesus, the Son of God. He is Jesus, which is a reminder of his humanity. This was the name given to him whenever he was born by his parents. And it reminds us that his humanity is one and the same with our humanity, that he had to be made like us in every way, that since the children share in flesh and blood, he also likewise partook of the same. But he is also the Son of God. He is fully divine, which gives us in great confidence that he and he alone can serve as the only mediator between God and man. Only Jesus Christ can serve in this role. He is the only one that can bring holy God and sinful men back into communion together. Only in him can we have fellowship with God, only through Christ. So he is the perfect mediator between God and man. Therefore, we should hold fast to him, never forsake our profession of faith in Christ, even if that means we must suffer for his sake. So that's what we dealt with last week in verse 14. Today, we'll deal with verses 15 and 16. So let's look at Hebrews 4, verse 15. It says, For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Here the apostle assures us that our great high priest cares for us. He has concern for his people. Jesus loves his sheep. And as a great high priest, he has compassion for those who are under his care. This was true of Jesus when he was on this earth, when he took on human flesh, and when he was in his state of humility. In John chapter 13, verse 1, it says this, Now before the feast of the Passover, Jesus, knowing that his hour had come, that he would depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. He loved his own while he was in the world, and how long did he love them? He loved them to the very end. From the very beginning of his ministry to the very end of his ministry, he loved his own. But is this still true today? Why would Jesus care about us? Why would he have any regard for us seeing that we are so weak, seeing that we are of the earth, seeing that we are nothing in comparison to him? And he now has been crowned with glory and honor. He has been exalted to the position of highest honor at the right hand of God the Father. So why would he have any regard for you and me 
any care, any concern for us and what is happening to us and going on with us here in this present world. Isn't this often the case in this world? When someone is born into poverty or they're born into a humble state, and then they are raised out of that state to a position of great honor, of great wealth, of great power, often those people forget the ones that they grew up with. They forget the little guy, right? They no longer associate with them. They move off into some fancy neighborhood and they never go back and they never remember or see those that they knew before they came into their honor and into their prosperity. Well, will Jesus do the same to us? Will he forget about the little guy, right? Now that he is enraptured with the glories of heaven, with his position of highest honor, will he forget to pay attention to us? And here we are assured that this is not the case at all. He tells us we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses. Or stated positively, we do have a high priest who can and who does sympathize with our weaknesses. The people of God under the new covenant are not left without a high priest. God has appointed Jesus Christ for us. He has given him to us. He is ours and we are his and we are to go to him for every spiritual advantage necessary for our salvation. So we do have a high priest though he is not visible on this earth. He's not serving in Jerusalem. He's not there in the temple that was made with human hands, but he is serving in the heavenly Jerusalem. He is serving in the tabernacle that is not of this creation. And while it is true that in our current state, right in this life on this earth, Jesus is with us spiritually and invisibly through his Holy Spirit, It is also true that in heaven right now, Jesus is present visibly and physically there in heaven. When Jesus ascended to the right hand of God the Father, when he left this earth and passed through the heavens, he did so as Jesus, the Son of God, as both fully God and fully man. So our human nature that is united to his is in heaven right now at the right hand of God the Father. Our high priest in heaven is there bodily and physically, and he still possesses his humanity, which is one and the same with our humanity. The second person of the Trinity, right at the incarnation, the Son of God took on human flesh. He became a man so that during his time on earth, he was both fully God and fully man. Well, he continues in that state with both a divine nature and a human nature. How long will he keep both of those natures? He will do this for all eternity. And he must do this for all eternity because we are in need of a great high priest over the household of God. We are in need of a mediator between God and man. And for how long do we need a mediator between God and man? For all eternity. We need this for all eternity. And this means that Jesus currently is still a man with a human body like ours, except his has now been glorified. But it is of the same nature as ours. It is just in a glorified state. And this is why we are assured that he is able to sympathize with our weaknesses. 
our high priest is able to have compassion and pity for us because his human nature is one and the same with our human nature. So when Jesus was on the earth, he did not come in a glorified human nature. He obtained that glorified human nature at his resurrection from the dead. But at his incarnation, at his birth, he had our present human nature made like us in every way except one. He did not have the sin component. He did not have the depraved sin nature that we possess, but he did have a human nature that was not in a glorified state due to the effects of sin on this present world. 1 Corinthians 15 1 Corinthians 15 describes the contrast between the glorified body and the weak body that we now possessed. Jesus, at his incarnation, had the body like we have, one that was susceptible to weakness, one that was susceptible even to death, and now he has an indestructible body. 1 Corinthians 15.42 says, So also is the resurrection of the dead. It is sown a perishable body, it is raised an imperishable body. It is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. It is sown a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. So also it is written, The first man, Adam, became a living soul. The last, Adam, became a life-giving spirit. However, the spiritual is not first, but the natural, then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, earthy. The second man is from heaven. As is the earthy, so also are those who are earthy. And as is the heavenly, so also are those who are heavenly. Just as we have borne the image of the earthy, we will bear the image of the heavenly. Here, the body of Jesus at his incarnation was like our present body in every way. It was a body that was perishable. It was a dishonorable body. It was a natural body, right? It was not the glorified, indestructible body that he now has. It was like ours in every way, except he was without sin. There was no evil. There was no depravity. There was never any sinfulness in Christ. But this means that all of the hardships associated with this present life, right? As the prophet Job says, Man is born for trouble as sparks fly upward. Or as the prophet Jacob said in Genesis 47, 9, few and unpleasant have been the years of my life. So it was with Christ. Few and unpleasant were the years of his life. He was born for trouble just as sparks fly upward. Jesus did not, when he was on this earth, live in some palatial palace, separated from all of the difficulties, from all of the hardships of life, just living a comfortable, carefree existence. But rather, during his life, he was exposed to many sufferings. He was exposed to every temptation imaginable. Every temptation that we will ever face, Jesus was exposed to all of these things. He knows what it is to suffer. He knows what it is to be afflicted. He knows what it is to be persecuted. He knows what it is to face temptation. He is intimately acquainted with all of the weaknesses that we currently have. And this is why he is able to sympathize with us. 
This is why he is a better high priest, a more faithful and compassionate and gracious high priest than any of those who served in that capacity under the old covenant. For the best of those high priests were only men, mere men. And as men, they possessed a corrupt, depraved, sinful nature. They all had the flesh. So yes, they knew our weaknesses, but they also had the flesh. And because they possessed the flesh, the flesh would get the best of them. And they would fail to sympathize, to have compassion, to have pity on their fellow men. In their sinful nature, right, it was constantly attacking them so that none of them could perfectly love their neighbor as themselves. None of them could perfectly consider others as more important than themselves. But how can someone be a good, faithful high priest if he is not loving his neighbor as himself? Since his whole role in ministry is for the sake of another person. How can someone be a good, faithful high priest if he does not consider others as more important than himself? Since everything he is doing is on behalf of another man. But oftentimes, these high priests would indulge in their sinful passions that wage war within them to the harm and disadvantage to the people that they served. Didn't this happen even with Aaron? When he built the golden calf, constructed that golden calf to the harm of the people, to the corruption and pollution of the worship of God. And this was Aaron, the chief of them, right, who was a good high priest. Yet he, in his weakness, in his sin, did something so awful in his role as high priest. And then at other times, you had men like Eli's sons who were serving in this capacity. In doing so, not to minister to the people, not so that they might have tender compassion for them, but exploiting them and exploiting their position for their own advantage, to indulge in the lust of their flesh, to the ruin of the people and the corruption of the worship of God. Many of the high priests were evil, proud, haughty men. And then even the best of them still had the flesh that they were contending with and were not able to function in this role of high priest in perfection. So that at times they despised the people and did not relieve them in any way, but used their position for their own personal gain and to exploit the very people that God raised them up to serve. Malachi chapter 2 describes this. This was the case in the days of Malachi. Such corruption there amongst the priests that they are singled out for corrupting the, even the very covenant that God gave to Levi. Malachi chapter 2 verse 1 says, And now this commandment is for you, O priest. If you do not listen to me, if you do not take it to heart to give honor to my name, says the Lord of hosts, then I will send the curse upon you and I will curse your blessings. And indeed, I have cursed them already because you are not taking it to heart. Behold, I am going to rebuke your offspring, and I will spread refuse on your faces, the refuse of your feast, and you will be taken away with it. Then you will know that I have sent this commandment to you, that my covenant may continue with Levi, says the Lord of hosts. My covenant was with him, was one of life and peace, and I gave them to him as an object of reverence, so he revered me and stood in awe of my name. 
True instruction was in his mouth, and unrighteousness was not found on his lips. He walked with me in peace and uprightness, and he turned many back from iniquity. For the lips of a priest should preserve knowledge, and men should seek instruction from his mouth, for he is the messenger of the Lord of hosts. But as for you, you have turned aside from the way. You have caused many to stumble by the instruction, you have, and you have corrupted the covenant of Levi, says the Lord of hosts. So I also have made you despise and abase before all the people, just as you are not keeping my ways, but are showing partiality in your instruction. This is what the priests were doing, generally speaking. Not the exception to the rule. This was the rule. This is what they were doing. The exception was that there might be a good one. And this was true, not just in this one secluded period of time, but this was true many times throughout the history of Israel that the priests were behaving in this way. However, we do not have a high priest like this. We have one who is able to sympathize with our weaknesses because he himself has been tempted in all things that we are, and yet he did so without sin. And because he is without sin... He is not subjected to any corruption in the performance of his duties as high priest. Jesus Christ was and is a sinless, perfect man. He is the only high priest of whom it can ever be said that he committed no sin. Or as it says uh, in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 22, he perfectly loved his neighbor as himself. He always considered others as better than himself. Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 11, describes Jesus Christ in this way. Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 to 11, says, Therefore, if there is any encouragement in Christ, if there is any consolation of love, if there is any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, United in spirit, intent on one purpose. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interest, but also for the interest of others. Have this attitude in yourself, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason, God also highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. There he is saying that we should do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility in mind, we must regard one another as more important than ourselves. Well, who is the only one to do this perfectly? Well, none of us do it perfectly. We never do this perfectly in the home. We don't do this perfectly in the church. We don't do this perfectly in society. But Jesus Christ did do this perfectly. And we need to consider this in regards to the sinless perfection of Jesus Christ. Not only to make him qualified to serve as a sacrifice without spot or blemish. 
not only so that he is the perfect example for us to follow, but we need to consider the sinless perfection of Christ in terms of his qualifications as the high priest and in his ministry for us. He and he alone possesses the moral ability as a high priest that no other high priest ever possessed. Even the best of them still stumbled in many ways. Even the best had times and days where they did not love their neighbor as themselves, where they were distracted, where they were not putting the interest of others above their own, where they were self-consumed instead of being concerned with the good and welfare of the people. But Jesus has this perfect moral ability in his heart, in his will, in his affections, so that he can and does always concern himself with his people. In all of our sins, all of our sufferings, our sorrows, our temptations, our infirmities, our afflictions, our weaknesses, he is mindful of us in all of these things, and he has compassion for his people. He sympathizes with us. He takes pity on us for those that he serves as high priests. He is moved with compassion for them. And because we are his people, we are his body. We are his bride. And when we have a common interest in another, we are moved with compassion when we see that person that we love suffering under some affliction. Right? Isn't this true of the mother? When the child is hurt... When the child uh, falls down and hurts himself and begins to cry, isn't it the natural instinct of the mother to come and to have compassion on the child, to love the child, to sympathize and to soothe the child, to comfort the child in the midst of his crying, in the midst of his suffering, to relieve the child in this way? Well, doesn't Jesus have an interest in us? He is our head. He is our father. He is our husband. He is our elder brother. And in all these capacities, he loves his people. And whenever he sees his people suffering, he has pity and compassion upon them. And it is, moves him. He has this impulse to then relieve them of their afflictions, to come and help them in their time of need, which provides great comfort to us. Isn't it a great comfort when someone pities us? when someone has sympathy for us in the midst of our hardships, when they will come and just sit with us and weep with us over these things? Well, in our, this way, our Lord Jesus Christ has sympathy and pity on his people, and he will never forget us. He cannot do so because we are inscribed on the very palm of his hand. Isaiah 49. Isaiah 49, verses 15 and 16. Isaiah 49, verse 14 says, But Zion said, The Lord has forsaken me, and the Lord has forgotten me. Can a woman forget her nursing child and have no compassion on the son of her womb? Even these may forget, but I will not forget you. Behold, I've inscribed you on the palms of my hands, and your walls are continually before me. Right? A... Nursing mother uh, who has a nursing child will sooner forget her child and fail to have compassion on her son than God will forget us and fail to have compassion on his people. 
And we are assured that he will never forget us because he has inscribed our names on the very palms of his hands so that there is a perpetual reminder there to Christ to be sympathetic and compassionate toward his people. He is deeply concerned with us. In all of our infirmities, all of our sorrows, all of our sufferings, Jesus, our great high priest, has compassion for us. And he is well acquainted with all these sorrows because he himself was a man. And as a man, he was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief and one from whom men hide their faces. And because he will always possess his human nature as a perfect man, then he is capable of having such affections for us. Just as we are moved with compassion, just as our affections are aroused within us to pity some poor creature and to relieve it of its suffering, so Jesus has such affections for us. He has such pity for us. He is moved within his emotions, in his heart, his mind, his will, his affections are turned for our sake. And because he is fully God, he always has the ability to help us even in the hour of our greatest needs. And he does this for us in all of our weaknesses, right? In every sort of hardship that we will experience in this present life. From trouble to sorrow to suffering to persecution to temptation to danger to death. He is moved with compassion for us because of his common experience in these things during his time on earth. It says in Romans chapter 8 verse 16 or verse 36. For your sake we are being killed all day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Is this only true of the people of God or was this true of Jesus Christ? Before it was true of us, before we could say we are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered, before we could say we are being killed all day long, who was being killed all day long? Who was regarded as a sheep to be slaughtered every day of his life? Our Lord Jesus Christ. He already went through all of this. And so now he is able to have compassion when we go through the very trials that he has already faced. Just like a person who experiences some sorrow or hardship in life. Say there is a man and this man loses his wife, his spouse, his dearly loved wife that he loves so much. She dies prematurely. And then say a few years later, someone else in the church or some loved one, some friend that he has undergoes the same affliction that this friend of his also loses his wife. Well, isn't the shared common experience, doesn't it make it to where the one that has already gone through this, he is able to sympathize, to have compassion, to understand what this other man is going through. And he is able to come and comfort him in even greater ways than those who have not experienced it are able to do. This because of the common experience. The shared experience makes it to where he is able to come and grant relief and comfort to those who are going through the same things. Well, this is what he is telling us here. Jesus was tempted in all things as we are. He has like experiences with our weaknesses. No matter what we may face in this life, Jesus has already faced it during his life, so he can relate to what we are going through. He knows what we are enduring. He has experienced all the sorrows associated with his life. He knows what it is to lose a loved one. He has gone through those things. He knows what it is 
to be betrayed by one of his closest friends because one of his own disciples betrayed him. He knows what it is to be persecuted because he was constantly harassed during his time on earth. He knows what it is to be tired and weary and the difficulties associated with that with our present human body. He knows those things. He knows what it is to be despised and rejected by men. He knows what it is to have people slander and gossip about him. And he knows what it is to walk through the valley of the shadow of death. And the, the trouble in the soul when facing the prospect of an upcoming death. All of these things we're going to go through in our life at one point or, or another. And he has already gone through all of these things. He knows what it is to be tempted by the devil. And he went through that and never sinned. So he has gone through all of these sufferings and hardships. And because he himself went through these things, he suffered when he was tempted. He is able to help those who are being tempted. He is able to have pity and compassion on us when we endure such hardships as well. And because he is both fully God and fully man, and as a man, he is a perfect man, right? One who is holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners, then all of the virtues of love in Christ are pure, they are perfect, and they are untainted by any hint of sin. And we, the church, his people, are the objects of his love. So his love is perfected upon the objects of his love. And who are the objects? You and me. He has perfect love for his people. So 1 Corinthians 13, the virtues there mentioned of love, all of these virtues are found in Christ and they're all perfected in Christ toward us, his people. And he's doing this as, his, as a great high priest over us. 1 Corinthians 13, verse 4. Love is patient. Love is kind. It is not jealous. Love does not brag and it is not arrogant. Love does not act unbecomingly. It does not seek its own, is not provoked, does not take into account a wrong suffered, does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Goodness, mercy, tenderness, compassion, kindness, gentleness, all of these virtues of love are perfected in Jesus Christ, and he exercises these virtues of love as a great high priest over the people of God. And also we might mention the fruits of the Spirit. They're all perfected in Jesus Christ as well. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. All of these virtues of the Spirit, he possesses them without measure because he possesses the Spirit without measure. Sympathy, tenderness, compassion for his people. These traits, these qualities are essential for the execution of the office of high priest. And Jesus possesses all of these qualities with perfections, even though he has been highly exalted, and even in his present glorification. It in no way impairs or lessens his ability to have sympathy and compassion on his people. These are necessary for him to faithfully discharge his role as high priest over the people of God. And this is what he is doing for us. He's reminding us of who Christ is on our behalf. 
we have a high priest who is able to sympathize with us in our weaknesses because he was tempted in all things as we are, yet he was without sin. He reminds us that though he was tempted, he was pure. He never sinned, and there was not even the possibility for him to sin. It was possible for him to be tempted, but it was not possible for Jesus to ever commit a sin against God because he is the Holy One of God. And the one that was born of the Virgin is the Holy One of God. Now, since we have a high priest like this who can sympathize with our weaknesses, then what should we do? Verse 16, Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. When we by faith see and understand who Jesus is and how it is that he is fulfilling this role as great high priest, when we see him by faith serving as the mediator between God and us, we see his perfection as high priest. We see his humanity united to our humanity. We see his blood sprinkled on the altar there in the tabernacle, not of this creation. We are emboldened to draw near to God. In our sinful state, we have no boldness, no confidence that we can draw near to God. But rather, we would hide from God, run from God, be in trembling and fear before him. This in our sinful state. Isn't that what happened in the Garden of Eden? After the transgression of Adam and Eve, it says in Genesis chapter 3, verse 8, They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Did they draw near to God with boldness? Did they draw near to him with confidence after they committed sin against him? No, they did not do so. Because of the knowledge and guilt of their sin, instead of drawing near to God, they fled from God and they sought to hide themselves from the presence of the Lord. And this fear of drawing near to God is necessary in sinful men for two reasons. One, first, because of the glory of God, the holiness and righteousness of the Lord. And secondly, the sinfulness of men, right? Our own vileness. How can vile creatures like you and me, how can sinners who are corrupted in every fabric of their being, how can we ever draw near to a God as holy as the Lord our God? This is why Adam and Eve hid themselves in the garden. And this is why men in their sinful state, without a mediator, cannot draw near to God. This trepidation was likewise confirmed under the ministry of of the old covenant. Exodus chapter 19. Exodus chapter 19. Notice there that there were regulations in terms of how near the people could come to God. Exodus chapter 19, verse 10. The Lord also said to Moses, Go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow, and let them wash their garments, and let them be ready for the third day. For on the third day the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. You shall set bounds for the people all around, saying, Beware that you do not go up on the mountain, 
or touch the border of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall surely be put to death. No hand shall touch him, but he shall surely be stoned or shot through. Whether beast or man, he shall not live. When the ram's horns sounds a long blast, they shall come up to the mountain. So Moses went down from the mountain to the people and consecrated the people, and they washed their garments. He said to the people, Be ready for the third day, and do not go near a woman. So it came about on the third day, when it was morning, that there was thunder and lightning, flashes in a thick cloud upon the mountain, and very loud trumpet sound, so that all the people who were in the camp trembled. And Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God, and they stood at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was all in smoke, because the Lord descended upon it in fire. And its smoke ascended like the smoke of a furnace, and the whole mountain quaked violently. When the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him with thunder. The Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain, and the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, Go down and warn the people, so that they do not break through to the Lord to gaze, and many of them perish. Also let the priests who come near to the Lord consecrate themselves, or else the Lord will break out against them. Moses said to the Lord, The people cannot come up to Mount Sinai, for you warned us, saying, Set bounds about the mountain and consecrate it. So the Lord said to him, Go down and come up again, you and Aaron with you, but do not let the priests and the people break through to come up to the Lord, or he will break forth upon them. So Moses went down to the people and told them. There, if the people approached the mountain, God would break out upon them. God would consume them in his wrath because of their defilement, because of their sinfulness. This also was manifested and confirmed in that worship that was established in the tabernacle and the temple. The people were not allowed to draw near to God symbolically. Only the priest could enter into the holy place, and only the high priest could yearly, once a year, enter into the holy of holies. But the common man was not allowed, was not permitted, to draw near to God in those ways. But we, seeing that we have such a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, In seeing that he is filled with such compassion for us, he has sympathy for us, he takes pity upon us, we are here encouraged to draw near to God. We are invited to do so with boldness through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. The veil of the temple has been torn in two, and the way of God has been opened up to us, and we are called by God with confidence to draw near to Him through our great High Priest, Jesus Christ, through the only mediator, Jesus, the Son of God. And we are not in this bondage anymore, but we are in liberty and freedom, the freedom to draw near to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. 2 Corinthians chapter 3 Verses 4 to 18 teaches this. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 4. Such confidence we have through Christ toward God. Not that we are adequate in ourselves to consider anything as coming from ourselves, but our adequacy is from God, who also made us adequate as servants of a new covenant. Not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. For if the ministry of death... 
in letters engraved on stones, came with glory, so that the sons of Israel could not look intently at the face of Moses because of the glory of his face fading as it was. How will the ministry of the Spirit fail to be even with more glory? For if the ministry of condemnation has glory, much more does the ministry of righteousness abound in glory. For indeed, what had glory in this case has no glory because of the glory that has surpassed it. For if that which fades away was with glory, much more that which remains is in glory. Therefore, having such hope, we use great boldness in our speech and are not like Moses, who used to put a veil over his face so that the sons of Israel would not look intently at the end of what was fading away. But their minds were hardened. For until this very day, at the reading of the Old Covenant, the same veil remains unlifted because it is removed in Christ. But to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their heart. But wherever a person turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Now the Lord is spirit, and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. But we all with unveiled faces, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord, the Spirit. There in Jesus Christ our Lord, when a person turns to the Lord, when a person calls upon the name of the Lord, the veil is taken away. And where the Spirit of the Lord is, it is the Spirit of liberty, a Spirit of liberty and freedom. And that is what our apostle is speaking of here in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 16. The freedom, the liberty for us to draw near with confidence to the throne of grace. In our natural state, if we as sinners boldly approach the throne of God, if we came with such confidence before Him, God would break out upon us. We would be consumed in His wrath. So just like it happened with Nadab and Abihu in, in Numbers chapter 10, when they offered strange fire before the Lord, fire came out from the altar and it consumed them, right? They were killed there in an instance. Well, how do we know that if we draw near to God, He's not going to do the same thing to us, right? Maybe fire will come out and will consume us if we draw near to God in such a way. How do we know that such a fate does not await us if we boldly approach the throne of God? Because our God is a consuming fire. And what is the answer? Because we have a great high priest. It is Jesus Christ as a high priest in his ministry on our behalf that removes all of our sins so that God does not consume us in his fury. And we know that Christ, his sacrifice, has been acceptable to God. We know that God is satisfied with the offering of his body once for all. We know that in Christ, we have been reconciled to God, that we have been adopted into his family, that we are his dearly beloved children, that God loves us, and that God will be merciful to us. And with Jesus as our great high priest, we have the very favor of God. And there is nothing... Nothing at all of creation, nothing that anyone can do to us, and nothing that we ourselves can do that will ever separate us from the love of God that we have in Christ Jesus our Lord. So when we see Jesus, our great high priest, we are ever reminded that God is for us and not against us. 
that all of our sins have been atoned for, that the wrath of God has been satisfied. His wrath no longer abides on us, but now there is his love, his favor, his grace, and his mercy. We're no longer terrified to draw near to God, and we no longer have the expectation of being consumed in his furious fire, but rather we are emboldened and encouraged and commanded to draw near to God. And this is one of the greatest privileges that we have as the children of God. We have the right to be called children of God. We have this in Christ. And with that right comes many privileges. And one of the greatest privileges we have is the liberty and the freedom to draw near to God. And we have this because of Christ as the great high priest over the household of God. In Christ... The justice and the mercy of God are in perfect agreement and perfect harmony with one another. And so let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace. Here it is called the throne of grace. God's throne is a double throne. We know from Psalm 9-7 that his throne is established for judgment. And in our sinful state, it is only a throne of judgment. And this is the bad news for the ungodly and the unrighteous. But for the believer, God's throne is not only a throne of judgment, but also it becomes the throne of grace. And in Christ, the justice of God and the grace of God exist in perfect harmony. With Him as high priest, the justice of God is no way violated, but the door of the grace of God is opened up to us so that we can receive mercy from God. His throne is a double throne, a throne from which he executes his judgments and a throne from which he administers his mercy to poor sinners like you and me. And if we come before God's throne on our own, if we come before him on our own righteousness, in our own good works, on our own standing, what will we receive from God? What is all that will be waiting for us at the very throne of God? Only judgment and only condemnation. But if we come to the throne of God on the basis of Christ, through a great high priest, not based on our own righteousness, but based upon his, then what will we receive there at the throne of God? We will find grace and mercy to help us in our time of need. Our access to God's throne of grace comes to us only through Jesus, our great High priest. And so it says in Ephesians 2:18, through him, through Christ, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. We have access to God the Father through our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. So in him, the throne of grace is opened up to us. Now for what reason? He tells us, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. God's throne is full. It has a fresh supply of grace and mercy that we so desperately need. And our time of need is twofold. First, generally speaking, when do we need God? We need God every second of every day. Every second, every minute, every hour of every day of our life, we are in desperate need of the mercy of God. So every day we need to boldly, with confidence, go to the throne of grace and find grace and mercy that we need to make it through each and every day. 
But secondly, there are special times and seasons in the life of every Christian, times of particular difficulty, of particular hardships, when we are in need of an even greater supply of mercy and grace to make it through those times. And this is what the church in Hebrews is experiencing. They are facing a harsh trial. They are facing a harsh trial of persecution. So they are in desperate need of grace and mercy from God. And we will also be chastened in such ways. There will be times of affliction, times of sorrow, times of persecution, times of temptation. There are times when we are called to some great task, such as was Esther, whenever she was called to intercede on behalf of the people of God. Didn't she need mercy and grace in order to perform that duty? And there are going to be times, a time for all of us, when we will walk through the valley of the shadow of death. God exercises his children with such times and seasons through their life in order to teach us to draw near to God. Because when we are fat and happy, right, which is often the case, we forget our need. We go through life and we have no hardships, no difficulties, and we quit relying on God. We forget that we are in desperate need of Him. But when God pursues us on every side, when He presses us with afflictions, then we are reminded of our need of Him. And then we go to Him and we cry out to Him during our time of need, and He helps us, and it gives us greater confidence in Him. As it says in Psalm 119, verses 71, It was good for me that I was afflicted, that I may learn your statutes. He learned the statutes of God because of the presence of the affliction. And the presence of the affliction caused him to come to some new understanding of God's statutes that he would not have experienced without the affliction. And so it is in this present life. The presence of some affliction causes us to draw near to God. And then when we draw near to him and we cry out to him for help in our time of need, we are assured in our passage that God has grace and God has the mercy necessary to see us through such trials and tribulations. It is all there waiting for us at the throne of grace. We simply need to draw near to God in faith in our Lord Jesus Christ and plead with him for mercy to help us in our time of need. And we know that God will give to us such mercy. Because when we are drawing near to him through Christ, our prayers to God are coming through our great high priest, Jesus, the Son of God. And will God, the Father, deny his Son? Will God fail to give us mercy when it is Jesus Christ, his own Son, our high priest, who is the one pleading with God on our behalf? He is our the one that's making intercession for us. So he is pleading with God the Father on our behalf. Will God the Father deny him the mercy that we need when Jesus is the one pleading with God to give it to us? Of course not. It says in Matthew 7, 11, If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give what is good to those who ask him? In comparison to God, we are evil people. And yet, even here on this earth, we know how to give good gifts to our children. We know how to care for them. We have compassion on them. We have sympathy and pity for them. We have tender mercy for them. And we come and help them in their time of need. 
and yet we are evil, and we know how to do this. How much more then will our Heavenly Father, who is not evil, but is the perfection of love, how much more will He, through our great High Priest, have sympathy on us, have tender compassion on us, give us grace, give us mercy to help us during our time of need? He will help us. But what must we do? We must draw near to Him. Draw near with boldness. Draw near with confidence. Cry out to Him for grace and for help during our time of need. And we are assured that because Jesus Christ is there at His right hand, interceding for us, serving as our mediator between God and man, serving as our high priest, all of our prayers to God are offered up through Him. He is the one who is bringing it before God the Father, and God will not deny His Son, but He will give us all that is necessary for our salvation. This should give us great hope and great confidence during the time of our sojourning on this earth. Just because we don't go to a temple on earth, and just because we don't go to a man in that temple, does not mean that we don't have a high priest who is ministering and serving on our behalf. We have a better high priest than anyone has ever had, than anyone under the old covenant ever possessed, because our high priest is Jesus, the Son of God. And everything we need for life and godliness is found in his person and in his work. So then let us draw near to him with great boldness and great confidence to find mercy and grace to help us during our time of need. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you today, Lord, knowing that, Lord, if we were to be so bold, and Lord, to be so forward as to dare enter into your presence. Lord, to come before your throne. Lord, based on our own standing. Lord, on our own merits. Lord, based in our own righteousness. Lord, we would be consumed in a second. Lord, you are a consuming fire. And Lord, we in our sinful state are chaff. Lord, we are stubble. We are dry wood. And Lord, you would consume us in your fury. And yet, Lord, we see today that we are invited, Lord, that we are even commanded to boldly draw near to you. Lord, to come, Lord, not to a, a temple on earth, and Lord, not to a priest on earth, but Lord, we are coming to the heavenly Zion. Lord, we are drawing near to the highest heavens, Lord, to your very throne. And Lord, we are able to do so without being destroyed. Lord, without being consumed in your wrath. But Lord, with full confidence that we have your favor. Lord, that you love us and that you will not kill us, but that you will be gracious and merciful to us when we come before you. Lord, we see that this is only true because we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. We thank you, Father, that you have appointed Jesus to be the high priest, Lord, over the household of God. And that, Lord, he is perfect in his execution of this office. We thank you, our Lord Jesus Christ, that you have compassion for your people. Lord, that you sympathize with our weaknesses. And, Lord, that we know that you have been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. 
you know all of the weaknesses, Lord, all of the hardships that are associated with this life. You have already experienced each and every one of them. We know that you are a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. We know that you suffered great afflictions during your time on earth. And so, Lord, you, more than anyone else, know exactly what we are experiencing. You know the hardships that we will be called to endure through this life. And, Lord, you know perfectly how to help us in our time of need because you went through all of these without ever sinning. And so you are able to give help and wisdom to us. Lord, we thank you for your mercy and for your grace in that, Lord, you are always there in our time of need to lift us up, Lord, to strengthen us, and Lord, to cause us to persevere. Lord, we admit that we are feeble. Lord, we are frail. We are weak. Lord, we have no strength and no power. And on our own, left to our own devices, Lord, we could not stand for one day. But each and every one of us would fall away. And yet, Lord, through you, we can do all things. And so, Father, we come to you today through our Lord Jesus Christ, Lord, asking for mercy and asking for grace in our time of need. Lord, so long as we have this flesh and so long as the devil is prowling around seeking someone to devour, and so long as this world is there to tempt us, Lord, we know that we have great needs. It is our time of need. And so, Lord, we are in great need of your grace and mercy, and we pray that you would give it to us. Lord, supply us every day with all that we need, Lord, to be faithful to you. And, Lord, we pray that we would press on until we reach that heavenly kingdom. And, Lord, until that day when we no longer are in need of anything because we will be perfect, and, Lord, we will be with you for all eternity. So, Lord, give to us what you require, and, Lord, fill us with your strength and your grace and mercy. And we thank you, Father, for being so compassionate and gracious to us, Lord, knowing that we don't deserve any of it, and yet you have given it to us through your Son. And it is in his precious name that we pray. Amen.